This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So, um, <laughs> things aren't always the way we seem. Sometimes we think we've, we've got a person or a situation or, or something figured out, right? But we come to learn that there was more to the story. Another way of saying it is, in life, sometimes things require a second take. And that second take causes us to slow down, to give another look, a more circumspect look, and give the thing some more thoughts. As you know, we began a new sort of mini-series last week titled Take Two. And the idea is to do just that, to, to slow down, to give another look, and to give some more thought. Last week, we began to rethink church. And on the docket this week, we have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is, in our Nazarene Articles of Faith, Article number 13, we're getting close to the end of these. And before we read that here in just a moment, I need to say this. In our tribe, in our movement, our denomination, one of our weak spots is the Lord's Supper. We've tended to have what we would say is a low view of the Lord's Supper. And uh, as a result of that, less opportunity to actually do it. So... I'm happy to report, however, that in our Nazarene tribe, as a whole, the tides are shifting, the tides are changing, the tides are turning, right? So things are are changing a bit. There are many among us in this tribe who are referring to themselves as sacramental Nazarenes. I'm one of those. We, We are teachers or leaders or pastors who are helping other brothers and sisters in Christ recover what I would say is a more rooted version of the sacraments. Our sacraments, as you know, in the Nazarene Church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the, the results of this is a more profound view of both Nazarene sacraments and uh, the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so uh, we want to think more deeply and carefully, attentively, about what the Lord's Supper is. And so what we're beginning to do, these sacramental Nazarenes, is move in the direction of the Lord's Supper weekly. Right? And I'm thrilled about that. I, I desire that for Ohana here. We, we want to do the same. And so from my vantage point, as a scholar of Scripture, as a theologian, as a pastor, I believe this is something that we should be doing weekly. So we're, we're actually at the start of Advent. When Advent rolls around, we're going to start doing it weekly. Right? We're going we're gonna to roll through Advent and do it weekly. And um, I've spoken about that with the board and like with everything else that we, we talk about with the board, we're all on the same page, which is a good thing. Um, by the way, while I'm on that, um, y'all know it's Pastor's Appreciation Month, and uh, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge some folks, right? So, uh, Tuan, we got back here. Kaylin, we're, Kaylin's back behind the, the curtain here helping run some things. Um, but we have Tuan and Kaylin Mendel. Where'd you go? You still in the house? He's, there you are. Did you stand up, brother? Yeah. 
I just want to recognize these folks. Uh, they're, they're part of the pastoral staff, the ministry team here. And so I want you all to give it up for them. Show them some love. Thank you, guys. And if, you, if you're currently serving on the church board, uh, that, that takes a lot of time. Uh, I'd like you to stand up if you're present this morning. Good. Yeah, let's, let's show some love for them, too. I, I just got to say, we, we have a great ministry team. Uh, we have a great board. We have a great board. They, they led you all through a season of some hardship. Um, and with all their collective wisdom, they put my name before the congregation for a vote. Um, so you know they're wise. But, but these folks, y'all, they do a lot. They do a lot. A lot more than most, most of us realize. For the last several months, ever since I, I've gotten here, um, I've been giving them some intensive work to be doing uh, throughout, throughout the weeks. Um, and they've been attending meetings and filling out all kinds of questionnaires that I'm giving them and uh, thinking deeply and imagining deeply and doing some research. And even just yesterday, um, uh, we met up on the North Shore, as Gail was alluding to, uh, for eight to nine hours. These folks gave up an entire Saturday to come up there and look at and consider what the future of the Bridge Church looks like. And man, I, I came away from that feeling just invigorated. After eight or nine hours of, of this, I, I left feeling pumped and energized and excited. Uh, we, and we're, we're happy, we're, we're pleased to, to uh, share some of the fruits of our labor with you guys in the coming weeks and, um, and, and help you see the vision that the Lord has raised up from among these leaders. And so I'm excited about that. And you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. But I just want you all to know, board, uh, ministry team, I'm grateful for you all. Uh, so thank you. As I was saying, um, we, we, we've talked about moving toward uh, gathering at the Lord's table weekly. And, and, and as I said, once Advent rolls around, we're going we're gonna to start to move in that direction. But really, uh, from, from my vantage point, it, it's a matter on the one hand of obedience, and on the other hand, it's a matter of grace. Why, why we ever broke the pattern, right, uh, that the earliest Christians started? Why we ever broke that pattern, one that was firmly in place by the end of the first century and clearly attested in ancient Christian literature on the scriptures? I, I don't know why we broke from that. And a lot of churches, a lot of congregations have. But, you know, there are, there are a lot of early references to the practice of weekly partaking of the Lord's Supper in 2nd century Christian documents, such as one titled the Didache. Or there's this guy named Justin Martyr. He wrote a work called the First Apology, um, as well as 3rd century documents, like uh, uh, Hippolytus' Apostolic Tradition was the title of this work. Tertullian, this guy, he wrote a document called in defense of Christianity. And in all those documents, they're talking about how in the second and third century, first century, right, they're all taking the Lord's Supper weekly. From the New Testament, uh, in Acts 2.41 to 46, uh, it says this, they accepted what he said, that is Jesus, and were baptized. These remained faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And on the particular day, with one heart, they continued going to the temple, yet also met in their houses for the breaking of bread. They shared their food gladly and generously. Now some tra translations of this say daily. They did this daily. 
I'm not sure that's the best uh, translation. It can mean a, a number of different things, this word by day, daily, or as I've suggested, on the particular day, because it's referring to the Lord's day, right? So uh, th- this, is, this is really important to consider this. And the picture that this paints is a really good one. We're reminded that they committed themselves to this, that they remained faithful in doing this in the brotherhood. And so with that in mind, I want to turn to our Articles of Faith here, Article 13. And here's what it says this morning. We believe the Lord's Supper, also known as communion or the Eucharist, first took place during Jesus' final Passover meal. There, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, shared the meal with his followers, and in doing so, made this ordinary event extraordinary. That's what a sacrament is, an act in which God takes something ordinary and meets us in an extraordinary way in it. In blessing the bread and the fruit of the vine, Jesus all at once made the meal an extraordinary event. On the one hand, it was an act of proclaiming, all at once, the message of his life, sufferings, sacrificial death, resurrection, and the hope of his return. On the other hand, it was an act of proclaiming that every time his followers gathered together to partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine, he would be present at the table by the Spirit. All here today, or all Christians today, are invited to participate. And those who have pledged their allegiance to Him, who have experienced renewed life and salvation in and through Him, and who are part of His church, are commanded to do so. Those who come to the table are to do so with gratitude, appreciating its significance, and acknowledging that this remains a reminder of our Lord's death until He returns. All who have pledged their allegiance to Christ and have love for all of God's holy children are invited by Christ himself to participate as often as possible. And one of the things that I love about this is the line that every time Jesus' followers gather to partake of the bread, the, the fruit of the vine, he promises to be present at the table with them by way of this Holy Spirit. And so this raises the obvious question. If Jesus promises to be present at the table when we gather around it, why would we not be doing that as often as we can? Why why are we not desirous of that weekly encounter? Truth be told, uh, we should be longing for such things. And I I don't want to prevent anyone from missing out on an experience of encountering Jesus and His grace. Baptized believers are told that they should be doing this. For the unbaptized, even the table is open to them. Why? Because as John Wesley said, a grace, the, the great, Jesus' grace at this table, he called it a transforming grace. And since this is not our table or my table, but the Lord's table, we leave it open to all. It's a place where all can encounter Jesus. And when I think of it from this perspective... Of a, even of a non-believer then, it may be well an instance where God's grace becomes real, right, for, for that person, a, a tangible or meaningful encounter to them. And so I'm not, I'm not suggesting this morning that the Lord's Supper is a sort of magical moment. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that it's a spiritual moment and a moment of profound grace. And that's the case because we believe Jesus is present among us. As we gather around the table, we remember. And by the way, that's today's focus. We remember and we act. Right? I love how one person, one Christian thinker described the Lord's Supper 
He called it a dress rehearsal for the passion. It's as if we're participating in a dress rehearsal, preparing ourselves to die daily and live to Christ. I love that imagery. And so that's how we're to treat it, as a sort of rehearsing. And as we do, I think we need to see ourselves in a couple of lights. Think about this. We come to the table as betrayers. We come to the table as betrayers. But we also come as recipients of grace, hope, and reconciliation. The old Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Anybody ever heard of Kierkegaard? Anybody? A few of them, even one of you? All right. Soren Kierkegaard, he put it this way. And when the congregation... Every time these words are spoken, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, anxiously but fervently closes around him as if to ward off the treason, as if to promise fidelity to him, even if everybody else deserted him. Yet no one dares forget that on that night he was along as an accomplice. No one dares forget that pitiful prototype which he hardly resembles otherwise, the Apostle Peter. But now they all betrayed him. And thus, all need to participate in the meal of reconciliation. That's an amazing way of putting it. And so, with that, I want to consider our focal scripture this morning. It's right here. Uh, from Luke... Oh, no, it's not. Is that the wrong... No... Oh, this is right, this is right. Luke uh, 22, 14. It's just the wrong title at the top. Uh, when the time came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've ardently longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Because I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then, taking a cup, this is Jesus, he gave thanks and said, take this and share it among you. Because from now on, I tell you, I shall never again drink wine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did the same with the cup after the supper and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And so there are lots of things that I could talk about in this scripture. I could speak on uh, the certain connection of the supper between the Passover meal. Or I could dwell on the question, what does he mean when he says I shall not eat of it until it's fulfilled? Or I could explore the fact that the Lord's Supper first occurred during a meal, a full-blown meal in earliest Christianity. And that that practice, doing the Lord's Supper during an actual meal, occurred for centuries. Why isn't this the case anymore? I could focus on a lot of things here, but in the short bit of time that we have left remaining this morning, I want to focus on just one word. And it's this. Anamnesis. Anamnesis. That's your word of the week or your word of the day, by the way. It's in your bulletin. Anamnesis. Everybody say that with me. Anamnesis. Now, turn to your neighbor and say anamnesis. Go. Anamnesis. Good. That word, anamnesis, appears in verse 19. And it's, it's in the sentence in Greek, Tuto istein amen anamnesin. Y'all do this in remembrance of me. That word, memory is anamnesis. It's a potent word. And, and while I'm not going to make too much of it, it's worthy of our attention. Because it often gets glossed over or downgraded. The reality is that anamnesis isn't simply or merely or only 
memory or remembering or, or something like that. It's a, it's a little bit more than that. One Christian thinker has stated it this way, anamnesis is to be understood as a liturgical or ritual recalling of a past event, of a past event to restore or make contemporary its original value. And even more, its setting of those who engage in the anamnesis into the very event which the celebrator commemorates. So the anamnesis is therefore much more than sort of just a memory. It places the celebrator, the participant, into the very event of Calvary and permits him or her to appropriate the blessing of the event to him or herself. So personally, I would define it this way. Anamnesis is an act of worship that recalls a past event by way of bringing it forward into the present and as it does, places those participating directly into it. It sounds a little wordy, so, but, but it's not really that difficult of a concept. Let me give you an example. In recent years, uh, there's been an increase in the field of sciences or field of study that deals with olfactory memory. It doesn't mean old factory, like an old falling down factory. Old factory has to do with smells and odors, your old factory senses, your smelling abilities, right? And so in old factory memory studies, Right? It, it deals with how certain smells from your past, when encountered in the present, can almost magically bring that place or that person into the present moment. Everybody, anybody encountered anything like that? You just, you're, you're in the middle of the day and you smell something and it's like, whoa, 1980 again, or you know, something like that. Um, you've experienced that, I trust. So the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is meant, in a sense, to bring the past events of the crucifixion and resurrection, even our baptisms, up to the present moment. And we're kind of reliving them. The past and the present collide and mix and meet. And even more, the future, it comes and meets us here too. Right? Because the Lord's Supper anticipates the resurrection day, the great resurrection day. It's also then a great rehearsal for the great resurrection day. So the supper is actually the past, present, and the future sort of colliding in one moment. And so today, I think a lot of Christians, we suffer from historical amnesia, right? They, they, we've not learned our past. Or if we have, maybe we've forgotten some of it. And so the supper, right, is a weekly way of helping bring our past forward into our presence. And when it does, it reminds us to anticipate also the future, our future hope, what lies out ahead of us. So anamnesis counteracts amnesia. Too many believers are disconnected from our story, from our history, from our rituals and our practices. And on that note, I want to, to go on a slight tangent this morning, if you'll give me a few minutes to do that. You don't have a choice, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I want to suggest this morning... Uh, that there are a couple of terms, words, that we could benefit from recovering. Okay, the, the first is the word religion. And the second is the word ritual. And I bring this up at least in part because as Christians, a bit of our language, quite a bit of it, our, our language, our thought, our terminology is being hijacked today. It's almost as if folks can now take the term Christian for example, and apply it to themselves and have a mean whatever they want. 
The reality is, that's absurd. Terms like evangelical have also been hijacked. And so we can just keep letting people hijack our terms, or we can try to reclaim them. I think two terms that have been hijacked are religion and ritual as well, along with Christian and evangelical and other terms. We've been co-opted. Our terminology has been co-opted. So I want you to hear me out this morning. I want you to know this morning that the religion versus relationship dichotomy, it's a false one. I want to encourage you to drop it if you're one of those people who talks about Christianity, not religion. It's all about relationship. I want to make a little bit of a case here. There was a point in my life where I thought that. And I thought I sounded good saying it. But I don't think that any longer. There was a time when I felt comfortable saying it. I don't feel comfortable any longer. Christianity is not a religion, I would say. It's a relationship. If I had a nickel for every time I heard a preacher or a fellow Christian say that, I wouldn't be rich, but I have a lot of nickels. Right? So humbly, I just want to suggest to you that it's wrong. Christianity uh, and Christians need not pit religion against relationship. It's a false dichotomy. The reality is this. What's needed is a balance of both. Religion, my friends, isn't inherently bad. It isn't inherently a bad thing. In fact, you know what? Our own scriptures, they talk about religion very positively. Very positively. So if we want to beat up on religion, we're kind of going against our own book. Our own scriptures talk about religion very positively. And the Holy Scripture talks about what pure and undefiled religion is. So if you want to make a distinction, say, uh, impure and defiled religion is not what Christianity is about, then go right on, right? James's bro uh, Jesus' brother, James, right? He's the one that says it. He talks about pure religion, Christianity being pure religion, undefiled religion. It's looking after orpho orphans and widows and those sorts of things. So our religion, when it's done rightly, can be pure, it can be undefiled, it can be good, it can be healthy, it can be godly. And so, while I'm at it, I should just say, I'm so tired of hearing the stupid saying, I'm religious, but, or I'm not religious, but spiritual. That's dumb. Just don't say it anymore. Don't say it. Sounds ridiculous. The word, hear me on this, this is where, this is where I want you to latch on to this with me. The word religion. Right? It comes from the Latin term religio, which is a two-part word, that R-E in the front of religio. It, it means again in words like uh, redo, restart, right? that re on the front of it. And so the ligio part, it, it comes from the Latin word legere, which means to read. Now follow me here. If you put them together, you get this idea of what religion is, is reading again, and rereading, and rereading, and reading again, and rereading. We are a people who read again, and read again, and keep reading, and keep reading. We come back to the scriptures, we're reading again, and again, and again. We're always back to this book, because it shapes us. That's what religion is. And so, in doing this, we allow the Christian religion to establish our foundation and our framework. And this, this foundation and this framework, it encapsulates our fundamental beliefs and ways of life and living. And so religion gives us a structure to build upon and operate within in healthy ways. 
And we absolutely need that. Something else that it gives us is community. We are a religious community. And in that, in that religious community, we get relationship with one another. And the foundation, the framework, the community, the personal relationships, they all play a part in how we understand God, relate to God, serve God, serving God's name. So it's both religion and relationship. We need the order and the community that our Christian religion provides. And so we need to let that old saying die. It's not about religion, but about relationship. It's about both. If a first century Christian, one of the earliest Christians, would have heard us say something like that, they would have just been confused. Like, what are you talking about? Right? Again, the scriptures themselves talk about religion and do so in a very good and healthy way, and we need to as well. Sure. Religion has been abused. Religion has been misused. But I dare say this morning that relationships have been misused too. Right? There's nothing inherently good or bad about relationships. Like religion, uh, relationships aren't inherently good. It's what you do with them that make them so, that make them good or bad. So, the next time you hear someone say Christianity is not about religion or relate, but relationship, you have a chance uh, maybe to engage them in a conversation about it. Ask them if they know where the word religion came from. Right? And so a lot of people use that phrase and they, they kind of do it to make themselves sound like spiritual, super spiritual. It's a hang, uh, that's a, it's a hang up of mine. Right? I, I, I'm fine. I'm fine talking about theology and whatnot, but man, I can't stand when someone tries to make themselves sound super spiritual or super pious and they never stop speaking this uh, fake church Christianese, right? We got to stop that. People don't take that crap seriously. Now, in addition to reclaiming the term religion, I want to suggest that we also reclaim the term ritual, right? Protestants. Uh, particularly those of us within the evangelical branches of Protestantism. Right? When I say Protestant, I'm just basically saying we're not Catholic or Roman Catholic. But Protestants have tended to shy away from ritual. They've left that to the Catholics. But here's a quote, I think, that gets close to my point. To many in our society, something, ritual means something superficial, meaningless, empty, phony, lacking in depth and sincerity. The very opposite, what in fact ritual ought to mean. From my perspective, religion provides us a framework with which to live out our faith, including a framework in which we place and nurture our relationships, and ritual was part of that. Ritual, it brings us back to our word of the week, anamnesis. It's when we engage in acts like baptism or the Lord's Supper that, that those invite us into the mysteries of God. And little by little, they shape us in our thinking, in our doing, in our living, in our being. I want to give a simple example uh, of what I'm trying to say about ritual. Every night before I go to bed, like many of you, I set my alarm. And uh, this week, every day, I set my alarm, 5.55. And that alarm, it went off. I hit the button, uh, stood to my feet, rolled out of bed, used the restroom, took a shower, brushed my teeth, got dressed, messed with my hair, because I don't fix my hair, I mess with my hair, um, put on my socks, uh, put on my shoes, went downstairs, Got, gathered my things uh, for the day and then went on my way. Now, I could say 
those were daily rituals. But that, that would be to sell the word ritual short. Those are daily routines. Here's another way to think about it. Before that alarm, I was asleep. I was in my slumber. Now, when I contrast that state of sleep and slumber with everything I did afterwards, right? when I was awake and moving about, ritual is what's in the middle of that. That's what ritual is like. That moment uh, we go from, from being in a state of forgetfulness, a state of amnesia, a state of not being fully woke, to a holy moment. We go from that, a state of being awake and participating in the events, and it reminds us of who we are, whose we are, where we're going, where we came from, why we're here. In other words, I define ritual for us Christians as a wake-up call from God. It's that moment, oh, that woke me. That woke me up. And that, that's what baptism's supposed to do. That's what the supper is supposed to do, sort of be this moment to wake you up. And that's what rituals, it's, it's a moment to wake up. And so the reason I make this point is simply to, to make the point that I touched on last week. Now, more than ever, we Christians must cling to the things that make us peculiarly Christian. If it means recovering the things we've lost, then let's do it. If it means reclaiming our terms, reclaiming our language, let's do it. About a decade ago, ago uh, Christy and I were traveling through Turkey and Greece, and we were attempting to follow the footsteps of Paul on this trip. Uh, by the way, I may be taking a group uh, over to Turkey and Greece this summer. If you're interested, let me know. I'd love for you to go. Um, anyhow, we were leaving Ephesus, and we stopped at this fine rug-making shop. It wasn't an immaculate shop or anything, but it was, it was cool because the weavers... They, they sat down, the weavers, they sat down right where we were, and we were watching them work, like use these rug machines that they had. Like they weren't really machines, but the way that they were doing it was, was so fascinating, really fascinating to watch. As you stand there and watch it, it's really impressive. You see right before your eyes like these patterns that start to emerge. John Bowling, speaking of that, that same thing, says this. He says, the secret to the beauty and permanence of such rugs is that the secret to, uh, is that the various threads are interwoven. And he notes that there are two things that stand out. First, a single thread alone cannot compare in strength or splendor to a thousand threads that are woven together in harmony with a grand design. The ordinary became extraordinary as the threads began to intertwine. And second, a person had to stand on the correct side of the rug making process to see the beauty. If you watch the weaving from the backside, all you see is a jumble of colors and textures. There's no pattern, no meaning, no real beauty. Only as you look at the pattern from the perspective of the one doing the rug making, the weaving, does the process begin to take shape. And so riffing on Bowling's words, here's what I want to suggest. What is true of fine rugs is true of the Lord's Supper. When it comes to worshiping and encountering God, there are many strands of worship, different songs, various prayers, various prayers, a variety of scriptures, a variety of sermons, giving, and the Lord's Supper. And each on their own has value and meaning, but the greater value rests in the sum of the parts. The Lord's Supper is but one of the beautiful, strong strands. 
and it's waiting to be woven together into the fabric of our, fabric of our weekly DNA. And so as we think about that, I want to just briefly, as, as we come to near to a close here, offer a dozen reasons. There are more, but a dozen reasons why I think we should participate. It's a bi-directional act. It's an encounter between God and humanity. It's a sacrament, an ordinary event in which God meets us in an extraordinary way. It's a means of grace, and as such, who are we to ever withhold it? It makes us a peculiar people. It connects us with believers cross-culturally and cross-temporally who do the same thing weekly. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of remembering the past, encountering in the present, and anticipating the future. Oh, I don't know where the other one went there. It's missing. I'll read them to you. It reminds us that we are treasonous beggars or sinners, constantly relying on God's grace and spirit. Thus, it's an act of humility. It reminds us that we, too, need to forgive sin and, when possible, allow space for reconciliation. It gives us a weekly rhythm shaped by the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and anticipated return of Jesus. It prepares us to go out into the world marked by the cross. It's carrying on the practice of the apostles in the earliest church, not to mention Jesus. And we believe that through the Spirit, Christ is present. So why would we not want to encounter Christ? It's a question I ask you again. I've given you 12 reasons, but all we really need is one, that Jesus said to do it. And we, we can piggyback on that again, noting that it was the standard practice of the earliest Christians. Some might wonder whether doing it weekly makes it less special. To that, I'm going to offer you uh, two quotes that resonate with me, I hope with you. The first says, a typical argument against this idea is, if we do this so often, it'll become less meaningful. At first, he says, this has the appearance of wisdom, but with just a little pondering, the illusion fades. Do we apply uh, this reasoning to other means of grace? Are we worried about praying too frequently? Reading the scriptures too frequently? Shall we be safe and make biblical preaching less frequent? These practices become rote, not because of frequency, but because of lazy minds and lazy hearts and the lack of a robust biblical proclamation alongside the Lord's Supper. Here's the second one. Some also say we can better appreciate communion when we set aside only certain Sundays for it, and on those days focus directly on communion. However, we do not need a more elaborate observance or a contrived production, but regular observance of this simple rite tied to the regular preaching of the word. We don't need to build it up with any extras. We need to preach the gospel and then display and participate in the gospel in communion. I don't think th taking the Lord's Supper monthly is going to solve the problem that some seem to have with communion losing its value. Nor do I believe that it somehow lends it more significance or solemnity if we, we do it less often. Besides, there's no compulsion for you to come. Nobody's forcing you to come. Even though you're told to do this by Jesus, nobody's out there forcing you. Each of you can choose, as with anything, to do it or to not do what Jesus says. If there are any who desire it weekly among us, why should we withhold it because a few have convinced themselves that they want it less? Hashtag speaking hard truths and love. Um, at the end of the day, I quite like what the theologian St. Ambrose said. He said this, 
Because I sin, I'm always bound to take the medicine. This morning, then, we've taken the medicine, the body and blood of our great physician. There's no greater medicine than the presence of God in us and among us. And so, let us keep the feast when we gather with one another as Ohana. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. I'd like you to receive this benediction. And after this, we're going to sing the doxology together. So we'd like you to circle up, uh, grab the hand of the people next to you. But now, for your hands up and receive in a posture of receiving this benediction. And now, you who stand on the stage, rehearsing moments to die to yourself and live to Christ, may you take hope and the promise that it's also preparing you for the great resurrection day. Amen. Let's gather and hold hands together.